Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We discuss an interesting new study about the unvaccinated and vaccinated against COVID-19. Ontario's mask mandate in high-risk settings has been extended and nurses are happy. More families are going to want to travel now that more restrictions have been eased. Find out what the top Ontario election issues are. Elon Musk takes over the Twitterverse. And will 2022 be the year of the Tiger Cats? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There's a new study out by the Canadian Medical Association Journal that says the unvaccinated increase the risk of infection among the vaccinated. Can't be too surprising, can it? Thomas Tenkate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Welcome back to the show, Thomas. How are you today? Thanks. Thanks very much for having me, Rick. I'm great. Thank you. This uh, study, as I mentioned, found that unvaccinated people threaten the safety of people vaccinated against COVID-19 and have a greater impact on how the virus spreads. Uh, as I said, th- this can't be too surprising. No, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, when when you think about it from a, a logical perspective, yes, certainly, you know, if you're unvaccinated uh, and you you know, you're out mixing in the community, then your, you know, your your both ability to transmit the virus as well as to uh, become infected yourself is is increased. And so, so, uh, so, yeah, that means that, uh, you know, if it, 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 it all, it's in a lot of ways, what this study was doing was sort of saying, well, what, what was in some ways, what was the impact of of having people sort of isolated, you know, in in this sort of lockdown, and so so because once you're sort of locked down, then you're sort of mixing with people generally generally going to mix with people with the same vaccination status. But once you start having people with different vaccination statuses mixing, what's the impact? What is very interesting is one of the officials involved in the study said, quote, when you have a lot of mixing between vaccinated and unvaccinated people, the risk for unvaccinated people actually goes down because those who have received two or three or sometimes even four doses, they act as a buffer. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So I suppose what, what this is sort of saying is, you know, if you think about just statistically, if you've got, uh, you know, if if your risk of infection is based on who you come into contact with, uh, if if you've, you're coming, if you're unvaccinated and you're coming into contact with more vaccinated people, you're less likely to become infected because of because of the protective effects of the vaccination. So, so I suppose that's what that's where that's coming from. And so, so it's uh, you know, I, like for me, the you know the message was well, you know the uh, the impact you know impacts of of vaccination uh, impacts of not being vaccinated is is quite significant. On, on the general community, even though, uh, you know, it was sort of dis- basically discussing this aspect, well, it's not just a personal choice. It, it has wider implications on, on, the, on the broader community. It makes me think that, you know, if, if there's an unvaccinated person, they'll probably want to hang out with someone who is vaccinated if that vaccinated individual is going to be a buffer. The, the issue is, though, I, I would suspect that most people who are vaccinated hang around with other people who are vaccinated and, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Whereas I think you know one of the things that we've sort of seen now is that uh, with with the Omicron variant, uh, you know, we really to be considered fully vaccinated, you really need the three doses. And so, so in a lot of ways, there's you know we haven't really reached the the sort of high levels of of vaccination status for three doses that we did with two doses. And so it really means that there's 
there's a lot of people who are you know have two doses and you know across the board we're saying they're fully vaccinated but that the level of protection that just two doses provides for for omicron is 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 uh is not not that great in comparison to to getting the the third booster dose, so I think in their in their model they they brought it brought it down to something like forty percent uh, effectiveness if you only had the like the two doses versus uh, like up to eighty percent if you had the three doses. So so that's that's quite a substantial impact. And so in some in some ways that's putting two dose people virtually into the category of unvaccinated. Once once you're talking the the time in the pandemic, what is really dominated by by the Omicron variant. That's a good point. So there's about 90 plus percent of uh, individuals who have two um, vaccination shots. And uh, the percentage of those with three is uh, hovering, I think at last check, 40, between 40 and 50 percent. I'm not sure if it's above 50 percent yet, but yeah, that's a lot of people without that booster dose. Thomas Tenkate is our guest, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. We're talking about this new study from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that says the unvaccinated increase the risk of infection for COVID-19 among the vaccinated. We've heard from Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health that has encouraged residents to manage the virus at their own risk. The trouble is, we're, we're, we live in a connected world, so really everyone is at risk. Yeah, definitely. You know, this is where, at, you know, at this stage of the pandemic, uh, the 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 role of role of vaccinations is is even though. The, the government has sort of pulled back in regard to the messaging and the and the really the the strong uh, strong uh, messaging around you know get vaccinated. What this study is really saying is you know vaccination is providing that really that that underlying level of protection for the broader community. And when you don't have the uh, particularly the third booster dose, then then it really is is uh, creating a lot of impact on both uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Can we also summarize that vax ports, mask mandates, uh, you know, they were they were needed and I guess they work to a point. But at the end of the day, if you're vaccinated or not, I mean, that's that's really the be all and end all. Yeah, I, I d- definitely. I think, you know, like one of the things when in, like, you know, public health or occupational health and safety situation, we always say it, the most effective control measure is at the, at the source versus at at the person so in regard to so in that situation being vaccinated is is trying to control the 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 source of exposure that someone might have to someone else whereas you know masks uh distancing all of those other things are trying to control it further away from from that source uh in the transmission perspective and so and the further you get away from that the the less effective they are because you you have to deal you have to uh basically rely on people to do the right thing and so once you have to rely on people to wear masks and you know uh, use hand sanitizer and social distance then those those measures are less effective so so if you can if you can have measures that don't rely rely on people to do something then they're the most effective measures and and that's what we that's what we're really relying on on vaccination to provide that underlying level of protection as best as possible across the community and then you layer on top of that these these other measures that's a great way to put it professor ten kate really appreciate your time today thanks for joining us Thanks very much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That is Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A lot of COVID talk on today's program, and, and that's okay. We need it now and again. I mean, we're still 
in the throes of the pandemic, so to speak. And there's still some debate around Ontario's mask mandate. We know it's it's not an effect in places like grocery stores or shopping malls or movie theaters anymore. But uh, there was uh, an announcement from the provincial governments that the mask mandate is being extended in high-risk settings, places like hospitals and long-term care facilities. It's, it is being met with some mixed reaction, which to me is kind of strange. You know, I'm all in favor of having that extra layer of protection in these settings. Let's ask our next guest. Mogan Hofarth is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Morgan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. What is the RNAO's position on masking in hospitals and long-term care homes? Uh, So RNAO is pleased that the government decided to extend the masking requirements in high-risk settings. We don't know. uh, We would say we're not ready to set an end date yet. So I think the June 11th end date is prematurely set. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID, how long we're going to continue to see it circulating in our community. We know we have high levels of COVID right now. We're hopeful that it's peaked based on wastewater data, but based on what we're seeing in the community and the number of people that are testing positive, it's too soon to be talking about removing these masking requirements in high-risk settings. Is the thought behind that, that, listen, masking isn't the silver bullet, but at least it's that added layer of protection? Yeah, masking is an added layer of protection. So between masking, physical distancing, vaccination, there's a lot of different things we can use to protect ourselves um, and to, to help stop the spread. What we're really concerned about is our patients and residents in these high-risk settings, but also our staff that work there because we already have a really serious staffing shortage. And when somebody's not able to go to work because they've contracted COVID, it makes it so much more difficult to make sure that uh, hospitals, long-term care homes, other places where we care for vulnerable, high-risk individuals like group homes, things like that, it makes it much more difficult to make sure that there's actually staff that are available to work. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Morgan Horfarth, is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, talking about uh, extending the mask mandate in these high-risk settings, such as long-term care facilities and hospitals. You mentioned that the uh, mask mandate is going to be in place until at least June the 11th. How much longer should it be in effect? And, and is that kind of, uh, you know, too much of a crystal ball because this virus has been so unpredictable? I think it is a bit of a crystal ball. I don't know that we're ready to say yet. I don't think we should be setting a date. We should say, you know, when we're seeing hospitalization below a certain percentage or community case counts below a certain number. We know that what's reported in the community are only those people who are able to get a PCR test. So there's many, many others that actually are positive, who've tested positive on a rapid test at home, but that never gets publicly reported. So we, it's too early to say at what point we would be able to remove those. Um, but I, I think that June likely will be too soon to have those removed. In our CHML poll question yesterday, we asked our listeners to uh, chime in on this question. Should Ontario's mask mandate in these high-risk settings be kept in place until the pandemic is declared over? And 83% said yes. So, I mean, it's it's very unscientific, but there seems to be the thought that, uh, listen, these these areas we should be extra careful of in terms of virus transmission. Yeah, Definitely. 
these areas, we saw how devastating the first wave of the pandemic was in long-term care and arguably the second wave as well. We really need to make sure we're doing everything we can to keep COVID out of those settings, um, particularly settings where people live in relatively close quarters and where they are vulnerable and medically complex. We need to make sure we're doing everything we can to keep COVID out of those places. And if that means that people who work there and people who are coming to visit there need to wear a mask for longer, then that that's what it might take to help keep these individuals safe. we got about a minute left in this segment. How are nurses doing in Ontario? What's the morale like? Nurses are tired. We've been working so short. Every single day I hear about different areas across the province that have really critical staffing levels where we have to close different units in hospitals or where long-term care homes are so desperately short of staff. Um, Public health can't keep up with contact tracing. We have a serious shortage of nurses in our province, and those who are still at work are really feeling exhausted but also feel like they can't stop going to work because then there would be no one left. It's a really difficult time for nurses and other healthcare workers as well. Yeah, there is uh, definitely a rock and a hard place for many nurses in this province, but we wish you and your members nothing but the best. Morgan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That is Morgan Hofarth, President of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As more and more COVID-related restrictions on travel are being lifted in this country, more families and individuals are looking at getting away, and they deserve it. Canada lifted several measures related to travel back on Monday. So what is changing? What do you need to know before you pack that suitcase? Kaylee Elaine is an editor, journalist, and media consultant and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kaylee. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, What are some of the big changes the travelers are going to be seeing here? Yeah, so I think some of the big changes, you know, initially we saw on April 1st was, was the lifting of the testing requirements. We're hearing about the states, the lifting of the mask requirements. And I think it's just making us feel like, you know, travel is coming back or that it potentially is a little bit more open to travel right now. We're also seeing unvaccinated and partially vaccinated kids, those aged 5 to 11, being allowed into and and out of the country as long as they're with a fully vaccinated parent or parent or guardian. It it seems like uh, it's a little less of a hassle traveling with a unvaccinated or partially vaccinated child. Yeah, and I think that was always one of the barriers because, you know, your choice to get vaccinated is a personal choice. But when it comes to a child, there's a lot of age restrictions and requirements and barriers to that. So I think that makes it a little bit easier if you're traveling with a family, potentially with multiple ages, children under five, that you can kind of navigate this a little bit easier. Something that is still, uh, I would I would put in the hassle category is the Arrive Can app. You still have to upload your stuff and, and make sure that's all up to date, right? Yeah, but the nice thing is that you do it on the app, so it's a lot easier than joining those never-ending queues at the airport and then trying (laughs) to fill with those machines. I actually prefer the app because I know that everything's there and it's all ready to go. 
Um, and I have a bit more control versus, you know, you're struggling with your bags and your children and everything in the airport. And then you're trying to press those buttons at that screen and it never quite scans right. That's a good point. And, and, you know, nine out of 10 people, I think, have a smartphone and it's easy to use and they just flash it uh, on the screen and the official uh, at at the desk says, all right, everything's good to go and and you're on your way. Callie Elaine is our guest, editor, journalist, media consultant. We're talking about the easing of COVID-related travel restrictions, or at least more restrictions being East in this country. So the question is, is this going to entice more people to get out there and travel? I think so. You know, I am in full support of all of the COVID restrictions that we've been having, but I do know that some of the testing requirements and stuff that needs to be done before can be cost prohibitive. You know, it's that extra sometimes a hundred to a couple hundred dollars per person. And then when you have a family of three to five to six, you know, that just becomes the you make it or break it on a vacation. So I think it is going to make travel a little bit more open, especially for those family travelers. And you're going to expand the destinations that you're looking at, potentially, you know, looking to go across the border, whether it's going to Buffalo to get your target shopping or, you know, maybe you're going a little bit further for a longer vacation. One of the big concerns of the last couple of years, especially as you know, borders reopened and we were allowed to travel or at least grown some confidence in that regard. One of the big worries is, you know, what is happening in other countries? If something happens and I'm stuck there, uh, you know, I'm stuck there. Are, are most countries that Canadians travel to have? Have similar rules uh, such as ours? Yeah, and I think what you have to really think about is your travel insurance, especially when you're traveling with multiple people and what applies to that, your kind of health plan, and then potentially if you get COVID or any other illness or have a medical emergency, like what is your care plan? What is your quarantine plan? What is your, you know, options there? And there's some great flexibility when it comes to short-term vacation rentals where you could potentially get a place if you needed to stay for a little bit longer with, you know, a kitchenette and anything that you might need. But it is something that we have to think about a little bit more. And we have to think about, too, the current COVID situation that we're kind of going into. Like when we talk to about cross-border travel, or travel, there are certain states I'll go to in a second and there's other ones that are maybe not handling COVID in the best way, and I might not want to be around (laughs) what's going on there. We're talking about the further easing of COVID-related restrictions on travel in this country and abroad with our guest, Kaylee Aline, editor, journalist, and media consultant. So what are some of the hot spots around the world that Canadians are flocking to? Yeah, you know, you're seeing a a resurgence of that European travel. Lots of people going to Portugal, Ireland, England, you know, stuff on that border there where the flights aren't too far to get to, but it just feels like a world away. You're also seeing um, that resurgence across border travel. You know, for us in here in Toronto, New York is a really quick flight, and that's something that we've been missing for the last couple of years to searching for warm weather travel, whether you're going down to like a Myrtle Beach or heading to Florida. Like you're seeing people really kind of revisiting those hotspots that they loved before and kind of exploring a little bit more. Cruise liners are finally back in Canada. Is there a a mad rush to go on a cruise or is there still some hesitation there? You know, I think it depends on the traveler. If you were someone who really enjoyed cruises before, heading back out there, using your credits, you know, getting back on that cancel vacation might be on your top list. If you were maybe a little bit tepid about cruising on the waters before, it's not something that you're going to be jumping back into. Personally, I can't see myself on those giant boats, but maybe a smaller river cruise where your passenger capacity is, you know, 200 or less. 
I would do that. But I think that has always been kind of my outlook when it comes to um, being on the water. That's a good tip. Kaylee, really appreciate the time today and safe travels. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Safe travels, everyone. Kelly Aline, editor, journalist, media consultants, as we hash out some of these easing of restrictions related to COVID-19 and the travel that we're able to do. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's new polling out from Ipsos that delves into what the top issues are in the upcoming Ontario election, which is scheduled for June 2nd. And who's best suited to lead on these issues? Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Daryl, good morning. Thanks for having me on. What have Ontarians listed as their top election priorities? Well, it seems they were listening to uh, the leader of the NTP, Andrea Horvath. Healthcare is their number one priority. And in fact, when we ask people who's best able to deal with it, it's the NDP. Uh, so clearly they've done their polling and they found the same thing that we've found. And what you asked uh, respondents to do was list their top three issues. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, top three. So we have a nice long list here. But the top five, which are the ones that really stand out, are health care, handling of COVID-19, lower taxes, helping with the cost of day-to-day needs like groceries and gas, and then helping to make housing more affordable for the middle class and families, which is the fifth issue at 21%, but that's still really high and something that we've never seen on housing before. Normally when we ask about housing, it's about low-cost, affordable housing for the poor and the homeless. Well, that tends to dominate the housing conversation, but now we're seeing a real uh, growing concern about the ability of the middle class to find housing. Yeah, there's a real clump of issues in terms of day-to-day cost of living. Exactly, and when, if we look back to the last election campaign, that's what really dominated. Now, the one issue that really Uh, bounced up in the last election campaign very specifically was hydro costs and we're not seeing that as big a as big an issue this time around but uh, it's certainly been overtaken by other what I would call you know day-to-day cost of living types of expenses. When looking at these top five healthcare is probably always going to be number one and has been for years at 31 percent but then you have as you mentioned the handling of healthcare lower taxes those day-to-day costs like groceries and gas making housing more affordable that that percentile ranges from 21 to 25 they're all really close. Yeah, they all are, and they're all talking about the same thing, which is uh, what an economist would call inflation, but what a, a, a Canadian, uh, average Canadian would call the rising cost of day-to-day expenses. So they're all they're all in this, this similar in this similar space where they're talking about uh, uh, the amount of money that's going out of their their uh, their wallets to be able to support their uh, their day-to-day living, and and. When you have a situation like that, and as you see from these data, is it's really an opportunity for the Conservatives to prevail. And that's why it's interesting to see that the NDP is focused so strongly on health care, because honestly, health care is usually the top issue in every election, and it's not decided on that issue. It's usually these other types of issues that drive how people are going to vote. And what's interesting is that the NDP tends to do really well on these t- these uh, kitchen table type of economic issues. So it's surprising not to hear the, the leader of the opposition go strongly after that. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. We're chatting about the latest Ipsos poll that um, looks at the top issues that Ontarian voters are contemplating as we head closer to the provincial election. There seems to be a delicate balance between uh, filling the bucket of health care and filling the bucket of, hey, we still have to move forward and grow our economy. 
Right. And uh, as I said before, on the health care issue, uh, people are really concerned about it. And they do say that the NDP can do a, do a better job. But you know, the Conservatives are only five points behind on them on that. Where I think the where I think the NDP's got a better opportunity is on those uh, the economic recovery issues that you're talking about right now, because what we're seeing coming out of the data is that people are in a very different mood this time around as we're coming out compared to last time where they were very hopeful. This time around, it's all about the economic carnage of of the pandemic and what people are really feeling in their day to day lives, and it's urgent. Healthcare and the economy kind of go hand in hand in this regard, too, because as Andre mentioned in the clip off the top, not only do they want to fix healthcare, but they want to hire a lot of people and create more jobs in that industry. Can it be done? Well, and that's that's the, the really interesting question here. I mean, you know, we, we see the number three issue on the agenda and one that's really the one in which the, the conservatives dominate along with the economy and jobs is lowering taxes. So how are you going to hire all those people unless you find a, a way to generate some revenue by government to, to pay for them, and that would be through taxes. So it's going to be a very interesting um, a conversation that happens over the space of the next couple of months as they, people try to, the political leaders try to square those two circles. How do you give people the services that, that they want, but also deal with the cost of living issues that uh, in the minds of a lot of voters are, are are also driven by the, the cost of taxes. And so it makes these campaigns so interesting. Daryl, thanks for uh, sharing the, the knowledge and the data with us, and uh, we look forward to the next Ipsos uh, Public Affairs polls. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. As Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. And, uh, yeah, when you look at those top issues, again, Ipsos asking Ontarians to list their top three election priorities, healthcare number one at 31%, Handling of COVID at 25%, followed closely at 24% by lowering taxes. Interesting to note, too, the NDP platform announced yesterday includes a tax freeze for those uh, households that earn $200,000 or less. Um, I'm not sure how the math is going to work out. And they said, too, that they need to see the budget that's going to be unveiled on Thursday. But you're you're freezing taxes, but you want to hire a lot more individuals and do so quickly i want to see the final arithmetic formula for that because uh, i think the proof will be in the pudding you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml they're the big winners i think the loser is elon musk i don't understand why he's doing this there is absolutely no synergy between this company and his other mm. two money-making companies. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. The deal is done. Elon Musk now owns Twitter. What does the $44 billion deal spell for the future of this social media giant? Well, you heard off the top uh, from McMaster business professor Marvin Ryder, who was a guest yesterday on Hamilton Today. Now let's hear from Jay Rosenthal, the co-host of The Peak Daily, which you can hear daily here on 900 CHML at 727 a.m. and 420 7 p.m. and get a whole host of info online at readthepeak.com. Jay, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Rick. It's clear that uh, business prof Marvin Ryder doesn't think this deal makes a lot of sense for Mr. Musk. Do you agree? Uh, sure. If you only look at it purely as what it means for his other business, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense for Tesla or for going to space. But I'm not sure that's what this is about. This is about Elon Musk and flexing his financial muscle and amplifying his voice. And I think in some respects, this will do that. Is this all about uh, flexing his ego as well? Yes. <laughs> That's a one word answer. Yes. It turns out if you have billions of dollars and you're the richest person in the world, you can do almost anything, including buy Twitter kind of on a whim. 
Are there any ramifications uh, uh, from a business sense? Does this maybe entice um, or strengthen the idea that other billionaires will kind of look at other, whether it's social media giants or other high profile companies to say, hey, I'll take a stab at it? Uh, yes, but Elon Musk is not first. I mean, Jeff Bezos owns the Wall Street Journal. I'm yeah. sorry, uh, the Washington Post. So it's not new that billionaires want to own media outlets. That's certainly uh, not new. This may be a little bit of keeping up with the very, very wealthy Joneses. If Jeff Bezos is the one to keep up with and Elon Musk doesn't want to be left out. So that's not new. I think the challenge is we have a couple different things here. One, we have a business story, which the prof sort of talked about, which is also about sort of can Twitter be profitable and sort of run as a private company? That's sort of the business story. I think it's also a societal story. And do we want billionaires owning all of our media outlets or where sort of the town square is, as Elon Musk puts it? Do we want that? Do we need that? And what are the ramifications of that from a societal level? And I think all of these things will be front and center as this deal unfolds. Jay Rosenthal is our guest. He's the co-host of The Peak Daily. You can check out the podcast and get more information online at readthepeak.com. Now, this deal still requires shareholder approval, regulatory approval by all respects. It's expected to close later on this year. But was this a case of the Twitter board of directors realizing that, hey, we're never going to get an offer like this? I think so. I mean, you know, the 52-week high for Twitter, it was over $70 a share. But that was a long time ago. Uh, when he started buying shares, it was at $33 a share, and he's buying it for $54.20. So in some respects, it is a good deal for some shareholders, certainly not the ones that bought at $70 a share, but for others, it is a deal. Um, I also think there was um, Jack Dorsey, who is the founder of Twitter, who's on the Twitter board, seemed to be making rumblings that he was in favor of this. So it, it is really... Um, it is a billionaires getting richer and billionaires getting richer. Um, so, so it is, is a bit about a billionaires boys club, um, you know, making money on money. Um, and, and so there's a bit of, there's a bit of that going on. So for shareholders, it's either a good deal or bad deal, depending on where you bought the shares. Uh, but I think it's also important to note that, you know, we talk about big tech stocks and we usually use the term FANG, right? Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. There's no T in Fang, right? So Twitter is is not a it is a big tech company, but it's not one of the five we talk about sort of from a huge stock performance. Their revenue, I saw someone tweet this and then I looked it up. Revenues uh, revenues at Twitter uh, are about the same as Olive Garden. So uh, <laughs> you know, so, so so while it is a big town square, it's not you know it's a billion dollar company, a five billion dollar company, but it's certainly not um, you know making money hand over fist like uh, the other Fang companies are. So, so there's a bit of that, but it is has outside influence on society and sort of the general narrative of what we talk about uh, in the public sphere. It's interesting to note that shares of Twitter jumped more than 5% following the news yesterday, and that Tesla stock fell 7%. Is there going to be an impact with Musk owning Twitter that is going to impact uh, not only Tesla, but his SpaceX program as well, and and whether investors, you know, depending on what is said on Twitter in the years to come, will it impact his other business uh, dealings? Uh, potentially. I mean, look, if if you, Rick, were the CEO of Tesla, right, and the founder of Tesla, and then you wanted to start a space company and run that, then you wanted to buy a media company and run that, that's a lot of attention you need to spread across some very intensive, unrelated businesses. So I think in that respect, it it, it we'll have to see how he wants to run. Twitter from an operational perspective, is he going to be a chief executive or is he just going to be an owner? But SpaceX and Tesla, like it is a divided attention game and that is challenging for anybody, let alone, uh, you know, people, you know, companies that are publicly traded. So if I was a Tesla shareholder, I would be a little wary of 
the guy that runs the company, um, you know, splitting his attention across three ways as opposed to two, which is, you know, across two is probably worse than across one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in some respects, you know, if he was only making electric vehicles and making the best electric vehicles in the world, that would be great. The fact that he wants to do that and go to Mars might be less than great. The fact that he wants to make electric cars, go to Mars and run Twitter that's a lot of attention spread across some pretty intensive uh, organizations. Very much so. We only have about 30 seconds. Uh, Elon Musk wants to unlock Twitter's full potential. What can we possibly see? Well, I think he's talking about the Apple Pie things, right? Like he wants to add an edit button. He wants open source for the code for the algorithm. He's talking about free speech. That's really the Apple Pie and ice cream of what he wants to do with it. I think we need to wait to see what happens with it, right? I mean, color me a little bit skeptical that a billionaire wants to buy a media outlet as important as Twitter and then unlock it for everybody. That isn't generally sort of the, you know, why people buy things. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. And, you know, there is lots of hate speech on Twitter now. Does he want to unlock the full potential of hate speech? Does he want people to organize rebellions on Twitter uh, or insurrections, as we've seen, is possible through social media? So I guess it really it, it, we have to wait and see. I look forward to coming back on the show when when he's taken the helm and the deal has closed to see what the real the ramifications are or the impacts or the benefits. Yeah, we'll definitely have to have that conversation. Jay, always appreciate the time. Uh, the time. Thanks, hey, thanks for joining Rick. us. You got it. That is a Jay Rosenthal, co-host of The Peak Daily. Check him out at readthepeak.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's still the CFL offseason, but uh, Ticats fans chomping at the bit, champing at the bit, chomping, champing, champing, uh, champing at the bit to get this season started. Because each and every time, whether it's in Hamilton or uh, Regina, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, whatever the case, when your team goes to the Grey Cup and loses, the fan base not only is irate and sad, but there is a thirst, there is a hunger to get back on the field as soon as possible. Because there's that, there's a void, there's an empty feeling, there's unfinished business. You want to see your team raise the trophy. And for what is now the longest drought in the Canadian Football League, uh, since 1999, Ticats fans have not been able to celebrate with a championship at the end of the season. Will 2022 be any different? Will it be different from last year? Well, yeah, we can say yeah, because number one, there's going to be 18 games this CFL season instead of 14. There's going to be a full-fledged training camp with rookie camps this year, which we didn't see last year. And there's going to be a whole new Ticats team on the field. And, yeah, there's going to be, you know, the, the familiar names. Dane Evans at quarterback, Don Jackson at running back, Simone Lawrence at the linebacker position, Tunde Adelike at safety. You know, most of the coaches are back, led by head coach Orlando Steinauer. The front office virtually unchanged, although Sean Burke is now the GM in Ottawa. The core of the team is basically the same. Yeah, some people have left. Jagera Davis, Jeremiah Masoli, Brandon Banks. Those three probably highlight the exodus of talent from Hamilton, but there's a lot of other talented players in Steeltown. So with that being said, the Ticats certainly hoping that a third time will be the charm here in 2022 after losing the CFL title game in 2019 and again last year. There is, as I mentioned, according to... Uh, the new norm here, a, a bit of normalcy in the Canadian Football League because we have a full season and training camp. And 
Uh, head coach Rolando Steinauer, who we sat down with yesterday as part of the Tiger Cats season preview news conference, is grateful that they can have uh, a more normal, so to speak, season here in 2022. I don't know if this is beyond, beyond nice. Um, I think it's important for just uh, the coaches, the players, the, the whole thing. It just, um, the, the training camp's already short, short. And, you know, that's the beauty of it. That's what I love about it, trying to get people together in a short period of time. But you also want to be able to prepare them uh, for the battles that they're going to be facing. So I'm actually excited, yeah, for training camp, of course, but extremely excited for preseason game uh, for, for the younger players mainly, but it, it is a general statement for everybody. There's been much talk about rule changes as well in the CFL, some suggesting that four-down football is being contemplated. Nothing has been decided but uh, Steinauer says, "Hey, he's he's open to seeing what works and what doesn't." Yeah, I'm always I'm always looking at innovative and creative. I think we don't ever want to stay the same. That's internally, that's offense, defense, special teams, and so I, I'm I'm for uh, trying to make our game more exciting and better, and the creativity now what comes to fruition. Um, that's a whole different conversation, but exploratory talks and really diving in and making some changes that we think. Um, will we'll help our game and help our league. I, I'm always for those type of things. What I'm not for is just always uh, squashing ideas at a round table and saying what won't happen uh, when we were afforded opportunities uh, in preseason or, or other things like that. And if- well, not directly saying that he supports adding a fourth down. Uh, he was rather diplomatic in his response, saying he's he's open to experimenting and trying different things that move the game forward. Ticats open the season June 11th in Saskatchewan. Home opener June 18th versus the Stampeders. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.